Hey, everybody. Welcome to Hope Solo Speaks. I'm Hope. Thank you for joining me on this journey. This show breaks barriers, speaks truth, shares life experiences, and opens eyes. I've always said silence never changed the world. So here we are on March 2nd, just a few days into Women's History Month, yet I'm feeling a bit somber. Now, I'm certain everyone has heard about the class action settlement with the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team and the United States Soccer Federation. Here are just some of the reactions about the $24 million settlement from around the country. Tony DeCopo on CBS Mornings. And, and Megan, I think you, you, you found what, what is a joyous and unifying note to end on there, that this means that the women can just play. Just play. Yeah. Just play, which is ultimately what it's all about. I don't know you, Tony, from CBS Morning, but it sounds pretty condescending. Now players can just play. A bit condescending, as women are told quite often, and male athletes as well, to shut up and just play. No more politics. No more kneeling. No more CBA arguments. No more lockouts. No more pushing for change. Just play. Yeah, it's condescending. U.S. Soccer Federation President Cindy Parlo-Cohn on NBC's Today. This is a momentous occasion. Um, this is a huge win for soccer. This is a huge win for U.S. soccer, the players, of women's sport. Um, and I'm just so excited to move forward together and actually start working with the women's team to grow the game both here at home and abroad. Cindy Cohn, the president of U.S. soccer, sounds like she's reading from a script exactly what she did in a hearing with the USOPC. She is guarded and controlled in everything that she says. Not a true leader for a federation that in this era truly needs one. Megan Rapino on NBC's Today. For us, this is just a huge win in ensuring that, um, you know, we not only right the wrongs of the past, but set the next generation up for something that we could only have dreamed of. Megan Rapino saying it's a huge win and it will right the wrongs of the past. What the hell does that even mean? That would actually mean that every former player would get back pay. How do you claim to secure future generations when the deal is still not done? Stephen Colbert on The Late Show. Moving on to the world of sport. For years, the U.S. women's soccer players have been fighting for equal pay. And this morning, the U.S. Soccer Federation and women's players agreed to settle their lawsuit. That's right. They did it. You see? Let's go. Hey, I can't believe it's a great thing. It's a wonderful outcome. I just can't believe it took this long to reach this goal. I love Colbert because he usually does his research. This isn't just a you go girl kind of topic in order to get his audience to hoop and holler. This is real life shit with real consequences. If we do not get this right, it will negatively affect generations of young men and women. And I would expect more from Colbert and his team of writers. So yes, for my very first podcast and at the beginning of Women's History Month, I would like to discuss the facts of this case and where it all went wrong. Let me begin by explaining both Title VII and the Equal Pay Act. Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 prohibits employment discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, and national origin. The Equal Pay Act of 1963, signed into law by John F. Kennedy, prohibits sex-based wage discrimination between men and women in the same establishment who perform jobs that require same skill, effort, and responsibility, and under similar working conditions. In other words, you cannot pay a woman less for doing a job as well or better than a man. These laws have been in effect for almost 60 years, yet wage disparity continues to exist. And lawmakers, senators, congressmen, and women need to make sure the laws don't merely exist but are actually enforced. 
and we should not have to sue our employers in the first place in hopes for fair wages. The reason for my sadness, the reason I feel gutted, kicked in the stomach, the reason why I feel betrayed and a bit hopeless is because the settlement is pathetic. There are no settlement numbers yet for the players because conditions first have to be met. There are three conditions that have to be met before the settlement can be qualified. The first condition, before any type of settlement is actually reached and before dues are paid, the men and women's teams have to agree to a joint collective bargaining agreement, a binding contract that holds both sides accountable, which by the way, in the entirety of my career has never been achieved. We operated in good faith with no legitimate CBA. The second condition, before there is an actual settlement, the Federation wants equal FIFA prize money. I think most people in the international soccer world would bet their lives on the fact that FIFA will not in our lifetime agree to equal prize money. Today, a men's World Cup championship team gets $38 million in prize money from FIFA. The women's World Cup championship team gets $4 million in prize money from FIFA. Assuming that FIFA would fall in line is absolutely bullshit. The United States Soccer Federation put this condition on the settlement knowing they have no control over what FIFA will do, and these conditions can never be achieved. The third condition placed on the players, and which the players also accepted, is the Federation and the women have to agree to equal rate of pay. Now, the rate of pay is the trigger issue in the Equal Pay Act. The two sides have to agree to what categories of monies goes into the rate of pay, meaning roster bonuses, different tournament bonuses, friendlies, camps, qualifying, et cetera. I know it's tricky. I'll circle back to this because the rate of pay was the major mistake the class attorneys made in federal court and why the case was dismissed in the first place. With these three conditions alone, the actual hard decisions have all been deferred. There is no set agreement on when and how to move forward with exact numbers and an immediate equal pay settlement. All conditions are formidable and nobody wants to talk about it because they want the Cinderella story or they just want it to go away so everybody can just play. Are you listening? Because this shit is important to your own children's future. You have to understand because this is what happened and much more went wrong along the way. The team's lawyers allowed this landmark case to get dismissed on summary judgment, meaning Judge Klosner refused to even hear oral arguments. And it all came down to Jeff Kessler and his team of attorneys making a crucial mistake. He did not define the rate of pay for the court, allowing the court to do so themselves. The court therefore added up every single penny from US soccer activities paid to the women, including their NWSL salaries, which is a second job. And he then included all of the World Cup and Olympic bonuses that the women received. He then did the same for the men's team and he came up with an average over a certain time period. The average for a women's player within this time frame was $220,000 a year. And the men's average was $212,000 per year. The mistake was that Kessler failed to tell the court that 75% of the women's money was bonus money for winning championships. So these assholes unwittingly used performance bonus money against the women. But had the men performed like the women, had they won a World Cup or two, the men still would have gotten paid 75% more from U.S. soccer alone. My equal pay case is the only one left standing in federal court. I was the first to file for equal pay as a professional athlete against their employer. And yes, I'm still the last one standing and fighting for equal pay for all. I have spent seven years knowing 
and understanding these numbers. In contrast to the class action attorneys, my legal team asked for $60 million in straight back pay for three years from the time that I filed, which was almost an entire year before the team decided to finally follow suit. Our back pay numbers did not include FIFA prize money. After fighting for years for equal pay starting in 2015, the players still went on and agreed to a less than equal CBA. They continued to believe in the promises of the Federation. They were outclassed, outmaneuvered. And then finally, after pumping the brakes and doing a 180 in the fight of our lives, they decided to show up to the party and they got hustled. And after nearly a year, they finally decided to sue, delaying back pay for many players and lessening what they are eligible for. They dragged their feet, wasted time, and many of the players who set this in motion will suffer from it. The class action legal team asked for $66 million in back pay, which included FIFA prize money. And as we already established, U.S. soccer has no authority over FIFA. Finally, and this is why I'm fucking crushed. If these women would have fought for equal pay for real, the economic position of women in the workforce around the entire country, as well as globally, would significantly improve. Well, the players did not see it through. Why did they not push forward and take it to the appellate court and fight for a historic precedence like we had promised thousands of fans, men, women, and children around the world? Because of fear and self-interest, the unwillingness to sacrifice anything, setting a precedent in the court of law for equal pay would be a monumental win. And what somebody could then call a victory and only then would I consider the work done and the future secured. But sadly, the wrongs of the past can never be righted for many. We must now look forward because as history has taught us, there have been many women in our past who have been willing to sacrifice for the greater good. So it may be Women's History Month, but I challenge every person out there to be willing to sacrifice if they want to see change. This is Hope Solo Speaks, and I'm not holding back. Like my mother says, don't listen to me now and hear me later. And with that said, I'd like to bring on somebody who has been in the trenches alongside of me in this fight for equal pay as well as on the field for half of my life. She is a part of the class action suit, two-time world player of the year, a two-time world cup champion, and my good friend, please welcome Carly Lloyd. So, man, Carly, thank you so much for being here with us on the first episode of Hope Solo Speaks, by the way, my first guest. I feel honored. Probably the teammate I respect the most um, of all my former teammates that I've played with and obviously a very loyal and and great friend of mine. And you always are yourself and you always um, stand up for what you believe in. And you're just a you're a, you're a good fucking person, Carly. And I, I don't think people get to see that very often because you're also all about your business, but you're, you're a very genuine person. So you've been through a lot um, in the course of the last year, obviously hanging up your boots, um, playing your final game, both for the USA and the NWSL. But you know, this episode is about the, uh, the journey of getting to equal pay and the settlement. So uh, it's been a long road. Um, it's been, I think about a seven year battle. Um, so I just want to know how you feel. Where, where do you stand today? I know it's been pretty exhausting and we had a lot of turns throughout the, the last seven years. Yeah. I mean, obviously we, 
we're in the trenches with this um, together. And, you know, I don't think, in my opinion, you've gotten enough credit for spearheading this, you know, especially bringing on Rich Nichols and, you know, we filed the EEOC, which feels like a decade ago. Um, but it's been, you know, it's been hard. And I think we, we've been through it. You know, we've, we've sat through collective bargaining agreements. We've seen what the men have been getting and how they've been treated all over the years. And we've just kind of watched from afar and we're like, wait a minute, we're flying middle seats to China. The men are getting charters. The, we're playing on turf. The men are not playing on turf. They're rolling in sod on top of the turf. Um, so, so not just from a pay standpoint, but there's been so many discrepancies. Uh, and I think, you know, you being brave and leading the charge as well as so many others on the 2015 world cup team, um, we were in this together. And I would say that that was probably the strongest that we've ever been as a team. You know, we've, we've talked about going on strike. We've talked about, uh, you know, this, this collecting bargaining agreement isn't good enough. Um, but we never, we never like got our feet over that line to, to really like make change. Um, so while I think it's, you know, a historic moment, um, I still think that there's a lot of things that, that need to, to change as well. I mean, you know, I'm newly freshly retired. I've got to pay for health insurance as well as, you know, you having to do that when you retired. Um, there's no pension, there's no retirement. Um, there's still a lot of things. So I know that you're always pushing, you know, you're, you're, you're pushing full throttle. Um, and I know that you've got, you know, some feelings of how you feel about it, but it's, it's been a long battle and, uh, man, a lot of calls, emails, you know, it's just, it's been a lot. There have been days where sometimes I felt like I was on an island all by myself or I wanted to, I never wanted to throw in the towel, but I was so just emotionally, you know, I, I felt the weight on my shoulders and my husband would be like, man, it's, it's a lot that we're, we're doing conference calls. We're reading court documents. I don't think people understand how much work it's been. So I imagine there's some sort of relief that the fight is over. Do you, when I say the fight is over, do you believe it's really over? You said there's things that we still never received. You know, for a long time, we were pushing for retirement funds, for 401ks, for health reimbursement, for annuities. Um, and we never received those, not in this settlement. Um, and we fought for those for a very long time. Do you, uh, do, do you see this actually getting settled because of the conditions that were placed on the agreement? I don't know. I mean, I'm out of it. So I, I have no idea how the CBA negotiations are going. Um, you know, this is contingent on that. It's also contingent on the men agreeing with for the same deal that the women are going to get. So there's a lot of variables. And as we know, um, while it's a relief and refreshing to not have to jump on Zoom calls and read documents and emails and all of those things, it's, it's still not over. Um, we have to remember that. And, um, you know, it, it can be tough coming to terms with agreeing on an agreement. So I, I, I can't speak on it. I don't know how it's going. I don't know if they're close to settling. Um, I would hope that U.S. soccer would, would figure it out, you know, to, to go down this route and then to 
kind of leave uh, the CBA hanging and not in agreement with everything the players want would be, you know, it would almost be going backwards. Maybe we can talk about the culture and the history of the team because, you know, we, we have tried to push for change even before we, we filed um, with the EEOC in, back in 2015 in um, who led us was, was Rich, Rich Nichols. Um, Rich Nichols was, uh, he helped with the NFL Players Association. He, he's an attorney who empowered us to stand for our rights as women. He completely led us. He led the charge. He educated us about our rights, about Title VII, about the equal pay. But there was a long journey way before that, way before we decided to stand up for ourselves. And maybe we can go down that road together because we, even way before we filed, I remember in all the different CBA negotiations, asking our former Players Association rep, uh, John Langle, saying, well, why are the men flying charter planes? And why are we sitting in the middle next to the restroom on our way to the Olympics, on the way to China? You know, we have to get out and train the next day and our legs have been cramped for 18 hours. And so it never really made sense to, to me. And I was always told by John Langle at the time, it's a non-starter asking for what the men get, whether it's money or whether it's charter flights, it's a non-starter. And I felt like we were barking up the tree, the wrong tree for probably 15 years, 10 years, trying to ask the right questions, trying to push for change, but not getting anywhere. And and for every CBA negotiation, it was basically the Federation told us how much money they would allot to us, and then we could figure out how to distribute it. But there was really never any negotiation. So that's been the history and the, and the kind of culture of the U.S., uh, you know, the Federation side in negotiating. Do you think with Cindy Cohn, you know, as the leader, do you think things are really going to change? I don't know. I mean, just talking about this brings me back to our days, early days, you know, in the, in the early, uh, 2000s, 2006, 2007, uh, being on those calls as more of a younger player and just listening to Langle and and the players. And it, it just, it always felt as if we just had to accept what we were given always, you know, and I think as women, you often don't, there's not a welcoming of being able to ask difficult questions or, or questions that kind of ruffle some feathers. And, you know, I just think in the past that it was just too much of a, you know, a friendly set up and play or be happy that you're on the U S the U S team. Yeah. We were always supposed to feel grateful. It seemed always. And you would always ask those questions and, you know, you obviously knew a little bit more and inside uh, of, of what went on on the men's side. And um, yeah, it just always felt like everything was accepted. And, and when we signed the, the, the latest uh, CBA in, what was it, 2017, it ended up getting signed. You know, you and I, we knew that it wasn't a good deal. Like we knew and, and we expressed that and you expressed that over and over to everybody on the team, you know, the way that they tiered the contracts, the amount of contracts, it looked like we were getting more of a guaranteed contract, which we were, but each year the contract numbers would decrease as well as the number of players on contract. So you weren't taking care of a greater pool of players, which from the onset in CBA negotiations is something that was always important to our players. Always. Association. Protect more players, not less. 
So when I saw that contract, when the team signed it after I, I was fired, I was gone in 2016, but we were fighting for the CBA. We were already in negotiations. When I saw the team actually signed it, I, I was in shock, man. I, everything we had been doing to fight and then for the team to actually sign like a less than equal contract and then use words like, well, it's equitable. Mm -hmm. We were fighting for equal, not, not something close, but not equal. So that, that was really tough to see. And then the, the joint sides, the federation and the players using joint statements and celebrating it like it was this moral victory for both sides. And, and that is part of the PR coverage that both the team wants as well as the Federation wants. You know, it's, it's a win for both sides, but it wasn't a win. It wasn't a win for the players. Yeah, I mean, I remember sitting through those negotiations and it just, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, we, we always just came back to, well, we don't want to strike. You know, we don't want to we don't want to not get paid perhaps. And, you know, those contracts, the way those contracts were structured out, how do you have less contracts during a world cup and an Olympic year? You know, you have, you have less contracts than the roster actually allows. I mean, that's just, you know, like Olympics are 18 world cups, 23. How do we go? How do we go backwards? You know? So some of those players that were on the world cup team and Olympic team, like didn't even have those guaranteed contracts. It just, yeah, it's, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I think everybody's feeling good about it right now and both sides, you know, federation, the players, but, you know, there, there's still a bit of work to do. Um, so, you know, I guess uh, we'll see how it all pans out. Isn't that insane to you that we played on the national team for two decades or whatever, close to, and we had an executive director of our Players Association who negotiated all of our CPAs, and I'm referring to John Lingle. And in that amount of time, nobody ever, John Lingle, especially the leader of our Players Association, nobody educated us about the, the Equal Pay Act and Title VII. And it's been around for 60 years. And we as women weren't really, I don't know, taught that in school. You know, I, I feel guilty looking back that I was really 30 something years old when I understood my rights as a woman being paid equally to a man, you know, representing my country. And, and I'm really happy that we created this dialogue and this, and this discussion because of our fight back in 2015, a very public fight that we are educating the younger generations. I mean, that, that is amazing. Cause I, I feel guilty. I feel, yeah. I can't believe that somebody didn't bring it up to us to tell us what our rights were back then. It took us way too long to to take this stand. way too long. And, you know, I'm guilty of just coming onto the team. And when I came onto the team in 2005, that's when they were, which you were, you know, part of, that's when they, they were fighting, players were fighting for those guaranteed contracts for pregnancy leave, health benefits, all those things. And I played two games in 2005 and I get a check, you know, sent to my house and I'm like, Whoa, like I'm rich, you know? Um, but there was such a bigger picture of, of what was going on. And, you know, at that point in that stage of my career, I was just grateful to be there and, and happy that I was, you know, doing what I love and fulfilling my dream. But as time went on, yeah, I mean, these, these things, um, you know, to not know about the Equal Pay Act, Title VII, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm guilty of, of not being educated enough on it. And now we are. And now the younger generation is as well. It should be in every school system, educational system. My goodness. Um, well, I think that goes into the fact that U.S. soccer, I mean, they're this 
massive, massive business, right? They've been around for a very long time. They've been very successful. They put the right people in the right place in terms of attorneys. They have a massive amount of surplus funds and money where they can protect themselves from lawsuits. And, and we didn't have that as a players association. We, it, it, it's hard to find a good attorney to work pro bono sometimes and to, and to really trust an attorney who's not getting paid. So, you know, we're going up against the beast. You know, U.S. soccer is the beast. We're going up against them. And I think that goes in hand with the fact that U.S. soccer can be patient because once a player gets to the point where you were at and I was at, where we're smarter, we're more intelligent, we're able to take a stand. We've seen for 10, 15 years the uh, inequities and the disparities between the men and the women, and we're brave enough to speak up now and we're successful. Then there's a quick turnover. And then now they're relying on younger players to just come back in, vote, be happy to play, get their paycheck, feel rich again. And I, I think that goes hand in hand with the fact of why U.S. soccer has been so successful in waiting us out and, you know, essentially coming out on top with a lot of these settlements and CBA negotiations. They're just waiting for the young kids, the, the old ones to pass and the young kids to come through. <laughs> I just think, I mean, as a whole, and, and this is touching on just the culture within U.S. soccer, like I would love to see it change. You know, I would love to see, I, I just feel like there's this wave you know, heading in a direction where there's not a lot of people that, that want to work there. And, you know, we've, we've, we've known so many people that have given everything to this team that have come in, have been, you know, paid barely anything, little per diem check that taxes, you know, are taken out at the end of the trip. They, they've, they've lost money because of their jobs at home. We've had doctors coming in, some of the best doctors getting paid nothing. We've had massage therapists where we've had to tip them up until recently where we don't anymore. So it just gets to a point where people just get, you know, they, they get strapped and, and, you know, the culture within, they just get tired of it. And, and I just would love to see a culture where people are thriving and they want to be there and you pay employees you know, not just the players, but you pay employees that deserve it. And um, because people give so much time and energy and, you know, you, you end up losing out on, on some of the best people that have come within that organization. And I've seen it, you know, and I've been around for decades and, um, you know, some of our staff have barely been paid you know, not just us players, but them as well. And they've gotten, you know, just, uh, abused with their time and all the things, you know, not just being a trainer, but then you, you gotta, you know, collect gear on the field and help the equipment, help the massage, the massage people, Chase balls. Massage people are filling up water bottles. Mm -hmm. I don't know my wish, you know, if I could help and do something would be, you know, to just the, the culture needs to change. Like it, it just, you want people thriving. You want to empower people. You want people to work for the Federation. You want people to be there because they love it. Um, and that's just something that I've kind of seen is we've just, we've lost out on some good people. And uh, so I just think it's a lot of things. And I don't know. I don't know if, you know, Cindy winning or, you know, with, with this whole settlement uh, contingent based on the CBA, if it's going to change things, I would hope. Um, but I don't know, maybe. Maybe I'll get asked to help with culture at some point. <laughs> yeah, well, you need to go in there and be a wrecking ball then. 
Um, but that, I mean, now that you bring all of that up, that is, that is really, it's heartbreaking. I remember all of our amazing equipment managers, you know, we know them all, we can name them all. They work their asses off. It's always supposed to be an honor to work for the United States Soccer Federation. It's supposed to be an honor to play for them. And it was, it, it has been for us, but also they can't just expect everyone to be grateful. You're right. They have to, they have to treat people right. They have to show respect and and, you know, that's, it's just a great point because it's not just the players, you know, we have to take care of everybody who makes the women's program, and the men's program, assistant coaches too, goalkeeper coaches. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, Fitness coaches, you know, every support staff and, and that number, believe me, when, when you see a list, the list of players that go into camp and then the delegation list, it's, it's more than players. Now we used to travel <laughs> with, I don't know, 10 people. You might get a goalkeeper coach. Right? Yeah. Our, our staff was, you know, was, was so minimal back then, but I don't know. I've just, I've been thinking about that, thinking about the culture and um, you know, even with, within our squad, I mean, the culture's the culture has changed. Um, it was really tough and challenging to play these last several years. I mean, to be quite honest, I, I hated it. it wasn't fun going in. Um you know, and, and it was only for love of the game, really for me, you know, that, that is, I wanted to win and I wanted to help the team, but the culture uh, within the team was the worst I'd ever seen it. So I'm hoping that the future is bright and, uh, and things change. Yeah. That makes me really sad, Carly, but I understand it. I, I know when I got fired in 2016, I think it must have been every every time I left for camp, Jeremy, my husband, uh, hated to, hated to see me sad. I didn't want to go to the culture of the camp. I didn't want to go to the the social aspect of camp. I wanted to train my ass off. You know how much I love training. I wanted to work my butt off. I wanted to compete. I wanted to play games, but I I didn't want to be around everybody and, and the culture of the team. And it, it was really difficult. I don't think people understand how difficult emotionally and mentally that is, you know, it, uh, it it's tough. It's tough. You know, I just wanted to be a professional athlete. I wanted to be cutthroat and I wanted to win, but you still have to play the political game and the social game sometimes. And, and that's hard for, especially an introvert like myself. It was really difficult. You know that, but I stayed in the room with you and tried to hydrate and watch our stupid shows. <laughs> Uh, all those, all those w- wasted moments of watching shows, binge, binge show after binge show. <laughs> I think you got me into 24. That was the main one you got that me into back in the day. Um, well, have you thought about, you said you want to possibly, you know, find a way to change the culture. Have you thought about running for athletes council or something like that? Because you, you should get your voice in there. Yeah. You know what? I I actually haven't thought about that. And, um, I feel like I don't know enough about it. Um, but yeah, I think it's probably definitely something I should consider. Yeah. You need to get you nominated and you need to get voted in period. It's a good call. I have to, yeah, I have to think about that some more. I just think that there needs, needs to be like voices that are honest, you know, and not just, um, you know, I'm going to go with the flow type thing. I mean, you, you know, you need, you need to kind of, as we say, ruffle some feathers, you know, you, you have done that in, in your career. And I've gone about my career, just being the most authentic version of myself that I can be. And 
that is what I've always stood by and provided people, you know, uh, what you see is what you get. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, people should be able to make their own individual decisions and not be swayed from somebody or something. Well, it is an election, right? We have the, the presidential election for United States Soccer Federation coming up on March 5th. And, you know, I, I ran for the president of U.S. soccer back in 2016, and I did it so my voice would be out there, a strong women's voice out there in the fight for equal pay. And you wouldn't believe the shit I saw, Carly, the politics, the, the uh, intimidating the athletes council members when they're in a meeting, they'd have all like the U.S. soccer people hanging outside the room and the, do- the meeting room and the door being like, hey, if somebody went out to the bathroom, they'd be like, hey, come over for a second. Or do you want some of our spread? They had this, this huge buffet spread and the players would actually come out, the athlete council members and go to the U.S. soccer spread. But I, I just couldn't believe the politics that that went on. And I, I saw it firsthand when I, when I ran for, for president of U.S. soccer. And I don't think that part is going to change. I mean, votes are bought. Um, players are, are bought. You know, they are beneficiaries of a lot of marketing and speaking engagements and everything U.S. soccer has to offer from their, their partners. So I'm afraid politics will always be involved. But if you get someone like you on Athletes Council, because you should be voted in, the most prominent player to ever come through the program, that's when you can get people to really think differently through conversation and education. So I, the politics will, will always remain, but you, you just, you gotta get somebody in there who's willing to have a conversation. And that's what I saw hadn't, wasn't happening before. And, and it's, it's really saddened me to see people on Athletes Council, former teammates, just be happy to be there, not show up for the election to vote. That's your job is to show up for the election to vote. They're just a lot of times there to say they're on the Athletes Council. And, I, I would be so happy to see something like that if you, if you ran for that. But anyways, turning the topic to something more positive, you've told me in our private conversations that you're some of the happiest that you've been since being done playing. And I thought it might be a little hard for you, you know? So I'm really happy to see that. You know, I know you have this beautiful house that you've barely set foot in over the course of however many years. Um, so tell me, like, uh, are you still training? Are you out there every day training still? No, I'm not training. Uh- I'm basically working out and running to burn calories now um, because I enjoy good food. And you're not kicking the ball around and playing pickup. No, I haven't touched a ball. No. What? You know what's crazy is you never know how you're going to feel when you get to this point. I mean, the blinders are always on, right? You know, we've got tunnel vision until until the end, and um, for me, there was always this vision of going four cycles. And, and finishing after, you know, 2020 Olympics. Um, but just the way that everything kind of unfolded, I, I feel like throughout my entire 17 year career, it, it was like I was constantly in quicksand having to prove my worth, you know, having to prove to the fans, to the media, to people at U.S. soccer, to my teammates, um, what I was about, you know, and it was so hard. And, and I feel like I never wanted the spotlight. I never wanted the recognition. I just wanted to be respected for what I stood for and what I was about. And I treated people and not just my teammates, but staff and everybody that I came in contact with the respect, whether you were an equipment manager or you were CEO. And 
that's all I wanted. I wanted to win games and I wanted to be the best that I possibly could and help the team. And I don't know, it was like, as I was nearing, I mean, I obviously had a lot of life changes that went on during 2020. Um, I had my first surgery on my knee, which is pretty good, making it through my entire career with only one surgery. Um, I cut ties with my longtime trainer, James, 17 years. Um, and I rekindled my relationship with my family after 12 years. And I really believe things happen for a reason. Um, but I'm not just saying this. I mean, I, it was the happiest I had ever, ever been in my career. And, you know, I can't look back and change things. Um, I can't say what if, you know, things fell into place the way they did and they happened you know, the way they were meant to happen. Um, but I'm so thankful for going through the trenches for 17 years and asking myself over and over again, why do you keep doing this? Why do you keep coming back? Even after I've had success, like why am I continuing to do that? But I always knew in my heart, like I'm going to determine when I'm done and when I've got nothing left to prove and I've got nothing left to give, like that's going to be the end. And to have my family there towards the end, um, it was like the greatest thing ever. You know, I never, I think I was so numb those years, just fight, fight or flight mode, um, honestly. And you have to be strong and you can't let anything penetrate you. Um, and, and I just, yeah, I was numb, but then I came to life again in the end and I was able to enjoy that beauty, beauty. And, uh, it was amazing. I mean, I was a totally different person, player. I think my teammates saw it as well and people saw it all around the world. Um, but just grateful for that, for that ending and, um, and retired life is, I'm loving every minute of it. You know, we, we talked the other day, you didn't miss it after, you know, uh, I mean, you, you probably missed it a little bit, but it's just, when you know, it's, it's done, you just, you just have this sense about it. And, um, that's where I'm at. When I, um, when I was completely done, uh, I got fired from the U S team, as you know, and then I decided not to play, not to finish out with the NWSL because U S soccer didn't want to pay me for it, but that's a whole nother story <laughs> of them trying to take advantage. Um, but when I communicated to my Seattle team that I'm sorry, you know, I, I, I can't do this by principle. I love you guys. I want to be there and a great teammate to you, but by principle, I, I, I can't, I walked away that day from the Seattle soccer field and I never touched the ball again. Wow. Unbelievable. I never, I never dove again. Like that, that was it for me. It was unbelievable. I have a kicking wall now in my dojo, but in terms of playing pickup or playing soccer again, I never did. And, and it's really sad to think about, you know, I love the game. I always did, but yeah, it was time to move on because there was also a lot of, a lot of tears along the way. And, and it was time to move on with my life. And it kind of sounds like you're turning that page as well. And Carly, the incredible thing is even when you were, you know, when I roomed with you throughout the 17 years or however many years since we were young, even on the under 21 scheme, you were all business, but I think that's why we were perfect together because I, uh, you know, I work hard and play hard and you're all business all the time. And, and you, you taught me uh, that fine line of professionalism. And I think I taught you to, you know, maybe shake it off a little and have a little bit of fun sometimes. 
Um, and we were perfect together. So don't ever lose sight of that. I know that that uh, you might have had more fun in your final years because you finally got to have your family around and, you know, you got rid of some dead weight, maybe, you know, with your, your former trainer and everything, and you felt free again, but don't lose sight of the fact that you created your own legacy throughout those two decades. You know, you created that and you can walk away knowing that you hold so many records that you're one of the most memorable players to ever play for the program and you're not going to be forgotten. So you created that legacy and maybe you had to be the person you were back when you were 17 to get to where you are now. So just don't lose sight of that because we had, we had a lot of great times. It wasn't, it wasn't always hell. <laughs> no, it was, it was freaking hard though. I mean, it was, it was hard. Yeah. It's just, it's hard. And, and I felt towards the end of my career where, you know, when it, even after 2020 being home for 10 months straight, um, you know, I'm like, it just got so hard to, to leave, you know, to like leave our house and like leave Brian. And I think that's when you just know that it's, it's time, you know, and I don't know, my one wish for you in your career is that you would have been able to have a celebration, you know, go out the way that you absolutely deserved because hands down the best goalkeeper ever. I don't know that anyone is ever going to come close to what you've done on the field, off the field. Um, but it does sadden me that, you know, you didn't, you didn't get that. Thank you, Carla. I think I might be the only player in the history of the national team program, men's or women who has over 200 caps and never received a retirement game. So thank you players association, get your shit together. Yeah. Uh, because you, you, it's a, it's a feeling that not many get, you know, not many get, not many actually deserve. Um, but when you get it, like it, it, it was truly special. And yeah, I just wish that I wish that you were able to get that. I'm incredibly happy that you, you got that moment, Carly. You got everything that you deserved and more. I know that you were being praised by anybody and everybody that knows the game. So I am so happy that you received that. And I feel like my retirement game is going to come in May at the Hall of Fame event with all of my good friends and former teammates who always trusted and loved me and who are loyal are going to be there, including you, my college teammate, Tina Ellertson, our good friend, Heather Mitz will be there as well. And all my close family and friends. And I actually feel like that's my, yeah, my, uh, my going away party from the it's game. It's going to be special. Wouldn't, wouldn't miss it for the world. Love you. I miss you. Um, yeah, it's time to be some old ladies together and <laughs> whatever they do in their forties, maybe we should get our act together. What, what do they do? Have play dates with kids? Or something? I know we, well, I gotta, I gotta catch up to you. I don't know that I want twins <laughs> right off the bat, but it would be, would be easy to get two out of the way. Um, but your, your kids are beautiful and, uh, yeah, I miss you miss, you know, miss our conversations and, uh, yeah, we'll have to get together. Bring your ATV. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Do whatever I want now. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcasts. Hope Solo Speaks is part of the SiriusXM Sports Podcast Network. The producers are Andrew Emmer and Cliff Augustin. Marissa Rivas is the acting director of sports podcasts for SiriusXM. Special thanks to SiriusXM Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen. 
SiriusXM Podcasts.